All right, good morning. Let's open our Bibles to Joshua chapter 9. We'd like to look at that entire chapter this morning, verses 1 through 27. We're going to read all the way through it, and then we're going to pick out key verses uh, to comment on. The topic there, we'll see, the Gibeonites trick Joshua into a treaty. The title of our message, Trick or Treaty? Suggested by someone else in our congregation, part of the title team that we're putting together. So I like it. Anybody wants to suggest a title, I'm open to it. So uh, this is a good one. Joshua chapter nine, verse one. And it came to pass when all the kings who were on this side of Jordan in the hills and in the lowland and in all the coasts of the great sea toward Lebanon The Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite heard about it, that they gathered together to fight with Joshua and Israel with one accord. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they worked craftily and went and pretended to be ambassadors. And they took old sacks on their donkeys, old wineskins torn and mended, old and patched sandals on their feet, and old garments on themselves, And all the bread of their provision was dry and moldy. And they went to Joshua, to the camp at Gilgal, and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a far country. Now therefore make a covenant with us. Then the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you dwell among us. So how can we make a covenant with you? But they said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you and where do you come from? So they said to him, From a very far country your servants have come. Because of the name of the Lord, your God, for we have heard of his fame and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon, king of Heshbon and Og, king of Bashan, who was at Ashtaroth. Therefore, our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spoke to us, saying, take provisions with you for the journey. Go meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Now, therefore, make a covenant with us. This bread of ours we took hot for our provisions from our houses on the day we departed to come to you. But now look, it is dry and moldy. And these wineskins which we filled were new. And see, they are torn. And these are garments and our sandals have become old because of our very long journey. Then the men of Israel took some of their provisions, but they did not ask counsel of the Lord. So Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the rulers of the congregation swore to them. And it happened at the end of three days after they had made a covenant with them that they heard that they were their neighbors who dwelt near them. Then the children of Israel journeyed and came to their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Chifarah, Beroth, and Kirjath-Jerim. But the children of Israel did not attack them because the rulers of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. And all the congregation complained against the rulers. Then all the rulers said to all the congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. Now, therefore, we may not touch them. This we will do to them. We will let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath which we swore to them. And the rulers said to them, let them live, but let them be woodcutters and water carriers for all the congregation as the rulers had promised them. Then Joshua called for them and he spoke to them, saying, Why have you deceived us, saying, We are very far from you when you dwell near us? Now, therefore, you are cursed and none of you shall be freed from being slaves, woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God. 
So they answered Joshua and said, because your servants were clearly told that the Lord your God commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of land from before you. Therefore, we were very much afraid for our lives because of you and have done this thing. And now here we are in your hands. Do with us as it seems good and right to do to us. So he did to them and delivered them out of the hand of the children of Israel so that they did not kill them. And that day Joshua made them woodcutters and water carriers for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord in the place which he would choose even to this day. Let's pray together. Lord, we uh, appreciate just pausing for a moment to uh, pray as a congregation and remind ourselves, Lord, that this is your word, that in and of itself it's alive and powerful at the same time, Lord, with the anointing of your Holy Spirit uh, to teach us, it, it can be transforming in our own personal lives. We want to submit to you first and then to your word, Lord, and to those things that you will share with us from your word. Most importantly, Lord, we want to see Jesus. We want to see him lifted up and magnified. We want to understand his nature and character, how it reveals your father's heart to us. Help us as we work through this chapter to glean from it all that is necessary for our life and for our godliness in this time in which you've called us to walk worthy of the name of Christ. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. I was touched in my studying this week by this quote from beloved Christian pastor and author A.W. Tozier. He said, We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Who I think God is and what I believe he is like will direct how I treat everyone I encounter. Or the opposite is true. How I treat people reveals who I think God is and what I believe he is like. Let's apply that to our story in Joshua chapter 9. The Gibeonites understood that God had told the Israelites to destroy all the inhabitants of the land. That was true, but it was incomplete. At Jericho, God spared Rahab and her family, showing that he would save those who believed and repented. The Gibeonites determined to deceive Joshua because of an incomplete knowledge of God. As for the Israelites, when approached by the Gibeonites, their first thoughts were that these people might be marked for destruction. They were, but again, God had shown mercy upon such people already their single-mindedness about God's judgment kept them from asking his counsel. The Israelites and the Gibeonites portray an incomplete picture of God. They both fail to, receive, uh, to reveal rather the goodness of God. As an attribute of God, his goodness includes his benevolence, his mercy, his pity, and his compassion upon us all. Towards the lost especially, his goodness is manifested as his long-suffering with them, not being willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. We encounter Gibeonites, as it were, every day. For the most part, they misunderstand God's goodness. It's up to us to reveal it to them, so we'd better have a handle on it. I'm going to organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, the people you encounter tend to misunderstand God's goodness. And number two tend to the people you encounter by magnifying God's goodness. 
First of all, in verses 1 through 15, the people you encounter tend to misunderstand God's goodness. The deception of the Gibeonites was wrong. But once they were among the Israelites, they enjoyed a rich spiritual heritage. On account of the covenant with them, Joshua wins a notable military victory defending them in chapter 10. It's the episode where the sun stands still so that Israel can subdue her enemies. Later in Jewish history, David will pitch the tabernacle at Gibeon. One of David's mighty men, Ishmael, will be a Gibeonite. God will speak to King Solomon at Gibeon. In the days of Nehemiah, the Gibeonites are among those who rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Their story is an example of God's goodness at work. They may have misunderstood God, but they sought him nevertheless. And God responded with mercy and compassion, even though they approached him wrongly. Now, the Gibeonites stand in stark contrast to their neighbors named in the opening verses. Let's read those again just for context. Verses 1 and 2. And it came to pass when all the kings who were on this side of the Jordan, in the hills and in the lowland and in the coasts of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite heard about it, that they gathered together to fight with Joshua and Israel with one accord. It says they heard about it. These people had heard about God for over 400 years. They had especially heard of the Israelites for the past 40 years since the crossing of the Red Sea. Now that Joshua had led them into the promised land, they had heard about their recent victories at Jericho and at Ai, recent supernatural victories. God was zeroing in on these group, uh, this group of people. His judgment was about to fall. But as you look at it that way, 400 years, 40 years, now down to the day and time that they lived in, his wrath, in his wrath, he is remembering mercy, always giving space to repent. If they had heard about Jericho, they had certainly heard about Rahab. That would have been a notable part of the story when people came and said, hey, the walls fell down except for one part of the wall where Rahab the harlot lived and her family, and they were all saved and spared. And so God is, is, you can tell in, in our studies in Joshua, because of the remarkable story of Rahab right at the beginning of the conquest, we're holding that in mind uh, and, and believing and understanding that God is not willing that any should perish. He said, yeah, I'm going to kill them all. But any who repented, he was willing to receive. These gathered together to fight against God. They refused God's goodness. They despised God's mercy. In the end, they would get what they deserved. They represent all those in every age with whom our God is long-suffering, but who refuse His goodness and despise His mercy. They must finally get what they deserve if they will not let God's goodness lead them to repentance so that He can save them. Now, I've said that the Gibeonites misunderstood God's goodness. How so? Well, first of all, they thought they could make themselves look like they deserved God's goodness. There's a big description here of their costume and their deception and the props that they brought. Uh, they disguised themselves as people from a far country. They might have known that God's law in Deuteronomy 20 allowed the Israelites to enter into treaties with people who were from far countries outside the promised land. They knew that God had told his people to destroy all the people of the promised land. And they probably knew 
or supposed at least, that they, they could enter into treaties with people who were not from the land. And so they disguised themselves as people who deserved mercy. Now, the people you encounter often try to make themselves look like they deserve God's goodness. They do it in a variety of ways. Religion is one way that people seek to deserve God's mercy. They believe that by keeping certain religious rites and rules and rituals that God will have to show his favor upon them. That, that's the nature of religion. I do something for God, therefore he is appeased. Uh, of course, the Christian message is uh, there is none of us righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Uh, all of us deserve judgment and death, both physical death and eternal death. Uh, and so religion cannot help us. Some have moved away from religion and they just are moral individuals or they have their own personal philosophy and they feel like they're generally good people. Uh, then some people just compare themselves to other people and they say, hey, I'm not that bad. And, uh, you know, as long as I'm not as bad as you, then I'm probably OK. In a variety of different ways, people disguise themselves as deserving of God's goodness. But none of us can ever deserve God's goodness. Then a second way the Gibeonites misunderstood God's goodness is that they thought they could earn it. In verses 8, 9, and 11, they stress their desire to be servants. Over and over again, they tell Joshua, we will serve God as if they can earn his favor with their works on his behalf. doesn't work that way. There's nothing we can do to earn God's goodness, not before we're saved and not after we're saved. By the way, when we talk about God's goodness as an attribute of God, we're talking about something that always transcends our personal circumstances. Whether I abound or am abased, whether I am being blessed or buffeted by life, God remains good. There is never a time and never has been a time and never will be a time that God has not been good. Goodness is a part of his nature. We have a struggle with this. Uh, we don't talk about goodness as an attribute of God too often, but we have trouble with this because we generally believe that, that God responds to us based on our relative obedience or disobedience. Uh, we, we kind of see God as parents at the end of a long day at Disneyland. Uh, I mentioned Disneyland last week, so I'll stick with that topic. But uh, one of my favorite things to do well, it's not one of my favorite things to do at all. But one thing that we do, we hang out at Disneyland late in the afternoon or, or late, early in the evening. And um, these poor little tykes, you know, they're, they're six, they're seven years old. Their legs can barely move, you know, and, and they only have the and they've been going all day, standing in lines, you know, the heat stroke and prostration. They've been eating junk food, churro after churro. And, you know, they miss their nap and all of this. And, and their parents are just they've gone wild. And, and, you know, every few minutes, somebody's going by saying, you begged me to take you here. I am never taking you to Disneyland again. If you don't quit crying right now, I'll give you something to cry about. <laughs> a friend of mine one time told me we were passing Disneyland. He said, he said, the happiest place on earth, not for my children. And, and you know, and it, it's just that kind of a, you know, sometimes there's this attitude that, you know, and we think of God as that kind of angry parent that sadly we 
sometimes morph into when really we're just tired and selfish and, you know, we, we just, you want to ride Space Mountain and your kid's just not tall enough, you know, and stuff. And if you were just taller, everything would be fine. And so, and we have a tendency to, to look at God and say, well, you know, life isn't going so well right now. I'm sick or diseased or there's so, something wrong. And, and so, you know, God must be angry. He must be saying, Gene, you know, you just, if you had prayed three more minutes this morning, I could bless you, but oh, it makes me so mad when you're like that. And we, we do, we have this, this attitude. And, and what I'm telling you this morning, the word of God says, God is always good. Goodness is his nature and it's expressed by mercy and pity and compassion. And we see it here on these Gibeonites. They come and they deceive God's people and God is still good to them. The amazing thing to me is that God continues to be good to them. No word of condemnation from God against them. Instead, as we noted, they begin to occupy a blessed place among God's people. He brought them in among his people and over time he established them. And isn't that our testimony too, if you got saved later in life? He brings you in among God's people and he begins to establish you. Think of the rough edges you had when you first came to Christ. Well, think of the rough edges you still have, you know, and and it was worse then. But, uh, you know, you, you come in and sometimes we we need to be careful dealing with people because people are at different places in their walk with the Lord. And even mature Christians are at different places in certain areas of their walk with the Lord. And God desires to be good to them, to be benevolent towards them. To get, one author said God's goodness can be described as his giving and forgiving. That's, that's our God. He is giving always and forgiving. And so I want to accurately portray that, which brings us to our second point. Tend to the people you encounter by magnifying God's goodness. We don't want to miss a very obvious but important lesson. In verse 14, we read the men of Israel did not ask counsel of the Lord. Now, it seemed evident that the Gibeonites had traveled from afar. Whether things seem evident or not, we ought always to ask counsel of the Lord. Now, it's true that God has given to us what we like to call sanctified common sense. But the most common sense thing we can do is to pray and seek the Lord in everything, no matter how obvious it seems, no matter how evident it seems. If nothing else, God will confirm that our common sense was correct. Uh, but here, for whatever reason or reasons, the children of Israel decided that the evidence was enough, the, no use bothering God. He's given us sanctified common sense. We can deal with this on our own, especially as we grow older in the Lord and we have experienced some things and had some victories and have some ministries established and that kind of a thing. We have a tendency to quit seeking the Lord uh, because we think we have everything, you know, kind of, in place and under control. And as a result, we often can miss a new leading from the Lord or the direction of the Lord or some nuance uh, in our ministry. We need to humble ourselves and talk to the Lord all the time, almost as if we're starting from scratch each time. When, when we were so excited, remember when you're a young Christian, you're just so excited about serving the Lord. Oh, Lord, you know, 
uh, use me, forgive me, I'm not worthy, all of those things. And, and um, you know, we, we want to remain those humble uh, Christians that we, we once were coming to the Lord as a child, as it were. If Joshua and the Israelites had asked counsel of the Lord, what do you think he would have said? Well, he certainly would have exposed their deception, no doubt about that. But would he have expected Joshua to exterminate them or to extend them mercy? Any answer would be mere speculation. Still, it reveals what we think about God. We can't say what God would have said, but what we say will reveal something about what we think about God. Perhaps this quote by Norman Geisler would help us. Geisler said this, We are saved by God's grace, but grace isn't deserved by any sinner. Justice demands that sin be condemned. There's nothing in a sinner that prompts God to save him. Instead, justice must condemn him. However, there is something in God that prompts him to save sinners, namely his love. Since God is all loving by nature, he must try to save sinners. Isn't that beautiful? That is how I want to portray God to any Gibeonite I encounter as someone who must try to save them. In his goodness, God is always just and must condemn sin and judge the sinner. But also in his goodness, he is always merciful and can forgive the repentant sinner and save him or her. God is infinitely just and infinitely merciful at the same time. I often refer to the episode uh, with Jonah going to the Ninevites. God said, I want you to go there and tell them that in 40 days it's over for them. My judgment is going to fall. And Jonah obviously very reluctantly goes, not because uh, he's afraid of the Ninevites or, uh, he, you know, any of that. He, he's reluctant because he suspects that they might repent and God will, as it says in the text, change his mind about judging them. And he wants them judged. He wants them destroyed. God gets him there by way of a fish and Jonah preaches a, a really just bitter message. And then he goes and waits. Sure enough, the Ninevites repent and God saves them. And there's a lot of, you know, if you, if you read commentaries, you know, everybody has this wrangling and, you know, what does it mean God repented and all this? It's very obvious. God is infinitely just and he is infinitely merciful at the same time. And he can say to a person, I'm going to destroy you. And then when that person says, I repent, he says, then I forgive you. And there's no contradiction in the heart or in the nature of God. He is both of those things at the same time. And because we know that his nature is love, as Geisler says, he is someone who must try to save sinners. The people we encounter tend to misunderstand God's goodness they don't see how he can be both just and merciful, and they mostly think of him as just and therefore somewhat cruel and impersonal. As we talk about many a lot here, uh, God gets blamed for everything in our world, every tragedy, every problem. You know, it's the old, if there's a God, why doesn't he do anything? There's nothing more personal than sending your son to die on the cross for the sins of the human race. Uh, I mean, people who malign God or say those things about God, they're not looking at the cross where the Lord said, here, can I direct your attention to the death of my son whom I sent God in human flesh so that you can rise above these terrible tragedies and this terrible sin that 
your father and mother brought into the world, Adam and Eve, and you can be saved and have abundant life both now and forever. Yes, God is going to judge the earth. The time is short. We talk about Bible prophecy more than anybody I know. The rapture is imminent. All the more reason to make sure people understand God is long-suffering toward them, that he is willing to save them by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, and that in his goodness he can forgive them their sin and save them. The truth is, before we were saved, we were in the same position as the condemned people in the promised land. We were outside of the covenant and the promises God made to Israel. We were outsiders. We deserve the judgment of God, yet he must try to save us. And if you are a believer in his infinite goodness, he did it by extending you mercy. If people are going to reject God, let's at least be sure they know that they are rejecting a loving God who is reaching out to save them. How can we better portray and therefore extend God's goodness to people we encounter? Well, first, we already mentioned that we are to ask counsel of the Lord. Here's something just to consider and meditate upon. The Israelites had just returned from a retreat at Shechem where they had read and reviewed the law of God. That was the uh, focus of our study the last time we were together on Sunday morning. They read and reviewed the law of God, the blessings and the cursings. Perhaps being confident they knew the letter of the law, they had missed the spirit of it. Illustration. Jesus was confronted with a woman caught in adultery. The letter of the law said she should be stoned. There was no doubt about that. Jesus didn't refute that. He didn't say, oh, we're going to overlook that or, gosh, that's Old Testament. I mean, that was the law. She had been caught in the act of adultery and she deserved to be stoned. And so Jesus basically said, yeah. So anybody out there without sin... Start heaving stones. And then he started to write in the dirt. Commentators speculate that he was writing down names and then sins that were associated with those. And one by one, the men there who were accusing the woman really only to trap Jesus suddenly remembered they had dental appointments. And, you know, they heard, uh, you know, my car's done, you know, I got to, my oil's been changed, you know, and they got to get down to Walmart and all that kind of stuff. Until finally, it was just Jesus and the woman. Now, she was still an adulteress. She still deserved to be stoned. And Jesus said, where are your accusers? Does any man accuse you? She says, no man, Lord. And she goes, no, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And so Jesus was able to take God's law, which he perfectly fulfilled in his life and ministry. Every jot and tittle, the smallest part of the law is fulfilled by Jesus Christ and show us the spirit of it is that God must try to save sinners and to say to them, go on the basis of my righteous sacrifice on your behalf and sin no more. And so without ever compromising God's word, we must ask his counsel to apply it in its spirit towards those whom he loves. We don't want to become legalists on the one hand. We don't want to become too liberal, obviously. We want to understand the letter of the law and then apply it in its spirit. And we do that by understanding the nature and the character of God. And whenever we're a little bit kind of, you know, unsure, there's always an illustration in the life of Jesus Christ. 
We can always find the Lord acting a, a certain way and we can act accordingly. Second, we can portray and therefore extend God's goodness to people we encounter by patiently instructing them in the things of God. Let's read verses 21 through 27 again. And the ruler said to them, let them live, but let them be woodcutters and water carriers for all the congregation as the rulers had promised them. Then Joshua called for them and he spoke to them, saying, why have you deceived us, saying we are very far from you when you dwell near us? Now, therefore, you are cursed and none of you shall be freed from being slaves, woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God. So they answered Joshua and said, your servants were clearly told that the Lord, your God commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. Therefore, we were very much afraid for our lives because of you. And we have done this thing. And now here we are in your hands. Do with us as it seems good and right to do to us. So he did to them and delivered them out of the hand of the children of Israel so that they did not kill them. And that day, Joshua made them woodcutters and water carriers for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord in the place which he would choose even to this day. Their punishment was to serve the Lord in his tabernacle. Oh, the goodness of God. It would be the best place to discover the grace and the mercy of God. The Gibeonites would see on a daily basis God's goodness towards sinners as they would watch and learn from the priests and the Levites, uh, and as they would go through the various sacrifices that they were providing the wood and the water for. Uh, they were already starting to learn about God's goodness from Joshua. Even though they had deceived the Israelites, Joshua and the rulers determined to keep their word to them. And so they were exampling to them the integrity of God and the power of God's promises. The Gibeonites responded by saying, here we are in your hands. Do with us as it seems good and right to do to us. There's a sense in which they could have and should have done this from the beginning. They should have come to Joshua at Gilgal dressed as Gibeonites, said, we're the Gibeonites. You're on your way to our city. You're going to destroy us the way you destroyed Jericho and Ai. Here we are in your hands. Do with us as it seems good and right to do with us, throwing themselves on the mercy of God. And so now they're, they didn't do that. They, they, we saw their crafty deception. But now they're learning as Joshua and the rulers example to them the goodness of God. Our instruction from God's word, our worship, our children's ministry, our ushering, our setup and tear down, our greeting, everything we do ought to be instructing people about the goodness of God. Every encounter we have outside of church ought to be instructing people about the goodness of God. Let me rephrase all of that. Everything we do in or out of the church is instructing people about the goodness of God. Thus, it is important that my understanding and that your understanding and that our collective understanding of God's goodness be accurate, that we are portraying God as he is portrayed in the word of God. And that's why we've told you over the years, as as much as is possible in the energy and empowering of the Holy Spirit and without us getting in the way, we like to talk about what God has done for you more than what you must do for God. There's just too much talk about 
what you must do for God, how much money you must give to God, how much time you must spend serving God, uh, those kinds of things. And, and there's too much of a burden being put on people. But more than that, it's, it's too much of, of a wrong impression of God as if God is, is the one who is demanding. And we see from the Word of God and what we're talking about today, God is good. He is a giver. He has given His Son and with Him all things to bless us. And if we give back to God, it is a response a voluntary response from a heart of love, filled with love. Because it is the right thing to do and the good thing to do and something that we want to do. I quoted A.W. Tozer to begin our study. The remainder of his quote makes for a good end. Tozer writes and he says, The goodness of God is that which disposes him to be kind, cordial, benevolent, and full of goodwill toward men. He is tender-hearted and of quick sympathy, and his unfailing attitude toward all moral beings is open, frank, and friendly. By his nature, he is inclined to bestow blessedness, and he takes holy pleasure in the happiness of his people. Let's pray together. Lord, that's how I want to see you. That's how my brothers and sisters want to see you. And that's how we want to see you as a congregation of believers, as wanting to give to us, to forgive us, and especially to forgive unbelievers. You want, Lord, your goodness to lead them to repentance. Yes, it's in the context of your coming judgment. We, we understand that. We talk about that. We know that the rapture is imminent. We know that after some 7,000 years of human history, you are narrowing down your focus to the last seven-year period of time on the earth. But even there, you give space to the inhabitants of the earth to repent until ultimately and finally they have rejected you and it's too late. Thank you for your goodness in all of our lives. I pray that we would begin to see that it transcends our circumstances, that we would understand how much you love us and care for us no matter what is happening around us. To a certain extent, Lord, no matter what we're doing in response to your love, your love is everlasting, never changing. We're the only one to leave our first love. I pray that we would be drawn back into it by your goodness and grace today, by your tender mercies, which the scripture says are new every morning. What a mercy it was, Lord, this morning. Not that we just woke up, but that we woke up with the knowledge of you. And I pray, Lord, that if there's anybody here in this auditorium, anyone listening, Lord, that doesn't know you, that your goodness would draw them to you today. That they would respond after the service, Lord, by coming forward and talking to one of the guys and receiving Christ as their Savior. We thank you for that. Now, Lord, we want to go from here and uh, see people, in a sense, as Gibeonites. We can assume that many of them don't understand that you are good. The world is not a good place right now. A lot of evil, terrible things going on. People have a struggle, Lord, trying to figure out how if and since you exist, those things are happening. We know. We know that the issue is sin and that you've done everything that can be done gloriously and magnificently on the cross, dying for the sins of the world so that men might be saved and have an abundant life both now and forever. And I pray that we would be unashamed of that message and that we would proclaim your goodness 
in the midst of this fallen world. We do it in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Let's stand together. All right, family camp. There's still time to sign up for family camp. Uh, obviously, there's spots available. So if you want to do that uh, over in the uh, chapel store, sign up. You can pay in full if you've already signed up, or you can uh, pay in full if you sign up, or you can still just put down a deposit. But we, we'd like to start really getting organized. Uh, we're down to the last three weeks, so if you're thinking about signing up, uh, do so. If you're signed up already, you would have received a letter this week about the shirts, and you've got all that instruction. We do need to know if you want uh, camp shirts, so just email us or uh, go into the bookstore and, and write down however you want to get that information to us. And the reason is we need to order them tomorrow from our distributor so that uh, they'll be here on time. Uh, so family camp. Tonight we'll be in Lemoore at 6 o'clock. Love to see you out there. Uh, if you'll pray for us tomorrow uh, here at the church in our cafe, we are hosting a luncheon for the Calvary Chapel pastors in what we call the North Valley uh, there's about seven or eight pastors that are going to be here uh, just for a time of fellowship. And uh, so pray about that around 11, 12, 1 o'clock, that we just have a good time praying for one another and encouraging one another. Wednesday morning, the men are together, 6.30 to 7.15 in the cafe for a time of uh, discipleship and prayer. Uh, and then, of course, Wednesday night, our Ignite service here at 7 p.m. from 7 to 8.15 with child care. Uh, and uh, junior high class. And if you didn't know, we, we have a full-blown junior high ministry at the Wednesday night. Uh, and uh, so get your junior higher involved in that. All right. Is that everything? I think so. God bless you. God keep you in Jesus name. Amen.